So like my last month in boot camp, I had this drill instructor come down to my platoon. And he says, McCarter, get over here. So I walk over. Uh, yes, sir. He's like, come with me. And he starts marching me across the entire like recruit depot. And he puts me in this room. I have no idea what's happening, by the way. Puts me in this room and they put this test in front of me. And by the way, I had this terrible fever at the time too. And in boot camp, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to get sick or draw attention yourself because you don't want to get rolled back. You don't want to stay there a minute longer than you have to. So I'm like super achy and like sweaty. I don't know what was going on, but they give me this test and it was like a made up language. And so you had to pick out like these grammar patterns and stuff from this like made up language. Like if this made up sentence means this, then what does this made up sentence mean, right? So I had no idea what was going on. I take the test, all right, and then marches me back to my platoon. The hell was that? <laughs> so, and I went like three weeks and then finally he shows up again. He's like, come with me. Okay, so we start walking across the, the recruit depot again. He goes, man, you crushed that test. And I go, uh, oh? <laughs> He's like, you're gonna be like, protecting the president's daughter or something. I'm like, what? <laughs> awesome. So he takes me to this master sergeant's office and this master sergeant's like, all right, uh, so you did pretty good on this test. And, uh, you know, so you're going to be going to Monterey to be a cryptologic linguist. And I was going, well, I'm a Intel guy. He's like, yeah, that's, it's the, your signals Intel. Intel. All right, that is Intel. And I go, uh, you know, that drill instructor said I was going to be like protecting the president's daughter. He's like, what the heck? shut up. All right. <laughs> it's like not even close. Like that, that, that drill instructor didn't even know what he was talking about either. With years of experience in military intelligence, working with teams of green berets, James McCarter is the guy you want to help you with your cybersecurity. He starts out as a small town Idaho boy and ends up in the Marines intelligence group. Listen to his story, how he uses this knowledge and connections to build a cybersecurity agency unlike any other. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. Welcome to this two week's editions of the Founders Podcast. My name is Brandon Minard. I'm here with my co-host, Jordan Hansen. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing really well, Brandon. How about you? Awesome. So we're broadcasting live from the United Commercial Insurance Studios, and we're excited to introduce, or I'm excited to introduce our guest for today's episode or for today's uh, podcast. Um, the person that we have on is James McCarter, and James, a couple... Uh, 
a, a few interesting facts about James. James is the CEO of Shadowscape, and he's run that company for three years. James is a former Marine Corps Intelligence NCO. He is the former vice president of training and director of threat intelligence and former team lead at NATO, SOS, SOF, excuse me, Belgium in intelligence led forensic and cyber operations training. So quite a bit of background in security and cyber operations training. And so we're excited to hear more of his story, but without further delay, James, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, great. No, we're excited to hear your story and what you've done. It seems like you have quite a bit of experience. Um, we've struggled to get James on and off because of different <laughs> scheduling problems and sicknesses and stuff. So yeah. finally we're here. That's the life of a founder, man. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so to get started, James, if you could, uh, our mothers are big subscribers to this podcast. And so we're trying oh to, boy. yeah, so <laughs> good luck. But if you were to explain what Shadowscape is, and what you do with Shadowscape to someone who's never heard of it or knows very little about that industry, go ahead and do that for us. Sure. Uh, so if I'm explaining it to my, my mom, I guess I say, uh, what we do is we find um, cyber risks and find the, the most efficient ways to mitigate those risks. Um, we really do that by focusing heavily on what we see in the cyber threat environment, you know, dark web, um, analytics, those sorts of things. Once we figure out the playbook, the, uh, the MO for, for cyber adversaries, we kind of turn around and say, okay, how, how well are our clients poised to, uh, to defend against these types of attacks? Um, once we do that, we, we build out comprehensive risk assessments for how, you know, how an adversary would most likely attack your network. And in doing so, we can provide, you know, really detailed, comprehensive recommendations for action on how to, uh, to close those gaps. Um, so that's, that's really us in a nutshell. We've been building a, a platform that will essentially drag uh, current security practitioners through our process of analysis to be able to do that themselves. Um, so hopefully we'll be rolling that out in the next few months. Okay. So um, I'm a software guy, James. Sure. I have a software company. Um, and uh, so I just, I'm going to go a little bit deeper into even the technical side. Please. Does this mean like penetration testing? So penetration testing is, is great. So for those that uh, aren't really in the, the know, penetration testing is essentially where somebody will, uh, will test um, from an offensive standpoint um, how well your, your security practices are, are you know, stacking up. Um, it, and they're good from a, a testing standpoint, but they're not really indicative of the way a cyber adversary is going, is most likely to attack your network. You know, they're noisy. You only have like three, four days to do a pen test. And uh, you have, you know, certain things that you can't do, right? I can't compromise right. one of your third-party relationships to do that. And mm -hmm. so what I would characterize this is um, something that, that lives above a penetration test as sort of an, an aggregation of all of the things that, that a penetration test would would likely miss would that be like sock two 
compliance? Like those kinds of things, are they kind of included or so overlap a little bit? Compliance is, uh, is something that we, we focus on from a necessity standpoint. So most organizations have some kind of, you know, compliance framework that they have to adhere to, um, you know, whether it be, be HIPAA, uh, PC, uh, PCI, uh, SOC 2, those sorts of things. Um, but we kind of characterize that as bottom-up security. And, and we kind of have an unofficial mantra that uh, compliance doesn't necessarily lead to security, but security almost always leads to compliance. Sure. So we start from the top down really focusing on the attack first, um, you know, your real vulnerability spots. And once we do that, a lot of the, the foundational uh, hallmarks of those compliance frameworks, they start kind of taking care of themselves. Got a piece right? of cake. Stop yeah. two after that, it's no big deal. Exactly, got exactly. It. And by doing it this way as well, if you've got, you know, 10 different frameworks and you want to see how, you know, you stack up with each one of those frameworks, well, you've already, we've already mapped out, out all those security controls. So right. we can move from one to another and say, oh, you know, we only have to do a few more things here to be, compliant. you know, CMMC compliant or, or whatever else. And so it's, uh, it's what we call top-down security, really right. attack-first type security. Now I think I'm thinking like <clears throat> general threats, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, just at a high level, I'm going to think like I'm going to be defrauded. Someone's going to come over and be able to steal money because they're using cards that are whatever. That's sure. Or... Someone's going to steal my customer information. They're going to get into my database, take all my stuff, sell it. Um, and now I'm going to be in the newspaper as a, I have a data leak. <laughs> right. Or the third thing is like uh, my DDoS, right? They're going to bring down my website. Are those typical? Is, is there something I'm missing from those? Or is that a typical? So those are those are impact statements, sure. right? And so a lot of the, the, the things that sometimes people mistakenly think that a breach is a breach is a breach, right? Oh, I opened a, I clicked on a phishing email and then we got, you know, ransomware. Okay, well, no, there was a cascading series of security failures that led to the successful execution of ransomware and it propagating throughout your network. The clicking of that email was just step one, right? They had to move laterally to other uh, machines on the network. Uh, it had to successfully execute on all those machines. And then at the very end, the things that you're talking about is the impact statement, right? Data encrypted for impact, and they demand a ransom for that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of different avenues of approach that an adversary can take to get to those impact statements. And so that's kind of what we call defense in depth as an industry, where we're trying to make it difficult not only from initial access, but lateral movement to you know so even privilege if you escalation that email, yeah it's still gonna it's not gonna hurt you exactly right. You're gonna and isolate that's it where somehow. we're trying yeah. to get and people uh, you know <laughs> they like to put a lot on their users and go oh well we got come on guys you can't be clicking those emails yeah i mean that Sometimes would be nice get tricked. but yeah. that's gonna happen mm -hmm. i mean that will never be a hundred percent covered brandon have you clicked on a phishing email <laughs> okay so this is timely because oh. <laughs> I, you know they're getting better they're getting they're, so they, they, they the are emails, they're getting crafty right the emails that you get looks i mean sometimes it'll say hey this is microsoft <laughs> i need your password and the email address will be like some random yeah seven five three yeah like gmail <laughs> yeah and you're like okay that's easy but i've clicked on them in the past and we've had a few employees click on them in the past and 
you know, you have network administrator guys that are, are incredibly intelligent and really, really good. But, you know, we try to set up two-factor authentication and we try to set up things that'll help. But but a lot of it does in our conversations come back to the users and user training. So that'll be interesting to hear more of what you guys do. Sure. And even listening to this conversation, I'll probably need to act like the layman's um, Help. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't understand some of the terminology you guys were saying. So for our user, for our listeners, I got your back. <laughs> I'll try to explain Protect it. them. <clears throat> okay. So, well, before we get too much into that, wait, 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 I have one more question. Oh, okay. Here we go. Sorry. So I worked at Lenovo for several years okay. and security, you know, I had to have security. Their main goal sure. was like, we don't want to show up in the paper right. or something like that. That was yeah. the goal, you know? And so I remember the security guy, super nice guy. But I hated when he came and talked to me. Yeah. Anytime. Because right. I wanted to build cool features that customers are going to love. And he's going to be like, nope, you can't do that. I'm, pre- I'm like, it was a fight. Yeah. Like, nice guy. How do you feel kind of being, sometimes you're probably the bad guy. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, and, and we do. We f- we're always going to fight usability. Right. Right. It's mm-hmm. always going to be cumbersome to employ security. And that's one of the reasons why we do what we do in the way that we do it. Um. You know, a long time ago, I had one of our customers at my previous organization come to me and go, how do I know you're doing what you say you're doing? <laughs> sure. And I was kind of like, you don't, do you? And Ideally. that's a problem, right? Yeah. That You should know. You should know every single thing that your security is doing for you, every problem that it's solving, and almost nobody does. And so what we did is we really focused on making the business case in a, a you know, quantified risk assessment that shows, look, you can do that. You, you're going to take on, say, $50,000 in risk by enabling this feature. Now, if that's cool, because th- this is, again, one of our sort of uh, our guiding forces as we go, we don't even, like security is this catch-all term that gets thrown around. From, from where we're standing, there's no security there's only risk. You're just, it's managing risk, right? Right. And it's a matter of how much risk you are willing to assume. So as a security guy, I'm not, I'm not doing a very good job at communicating that if I come in and go, hey, uh, it'll just be really bad if you do that. <laughs> and you're going, well, I need to do this. How bad? Well, don't. I really don't want you to do that. Yeah. Like, well, and that's, that's super bad. That's hard for, for any security organization. If you look at budgets for the CIA and the FBI and they say, well, we're, we're stopping terrorist attacks. Yeah. And you don't have a terrorist attack for 10 years. And you think, well, there's really not a lot of risk. And you think, well, we stopped all that risk, but you think, well, did you, but that's the point. So that's what's hard about security is, is you say, okay, well, we did all this hard work to avoid a a building blowing up, which is a huge pain and a huge problem. So you didn't see all of that. Right. You know, and, and when it See, comes we're really to, getting into the weeds here. And I love it, too, yeah. because you're right. As part of how you quantify risk is by the annualized loss expectancy. And so if you are stopping a bunch of those, you know, terrible things from happening, that what we call ALE, annualized loss expectancy, is going to get longer and longer. And thus, it's going to bring your, your risk down. But again, I should be able to show you know, the reasons why those sorts of things aren't happening. Yeah. And we don't do that in cybersecurity very often. And that's exactly why we're building what we're building. That's just a harder sale. It is. It's a harder sale than 
when somebody comes to you and says, I just got attacked, yeah. that's an easy sale. But a sale to say, I'm going to stop an attack right. is just, will always be a more difficult. We, sale, and, and you're right. And, and part of this is to make it easier for me. Sure. Right. Yeah, <laughs> as, so as trying to say, yeah, yeah. yeah, because I got to go in and I have to make it very clear the problems that I'm solving. So part of that is that we don't really provide the security as Shadowscape. We are more we operate more as a consultancy that provides recommendations for action so that there isn't sort of that conflict of interest where I'm just trying to sell you security stuff. And from where I'm sitting, most security companies are just trying to sell you as much security stuff as they possibly can, whether or not it's actually what you need. And the bottom line is most of these big hacks that you see, they had endpoint protection and firewalls and all the, why did it happen? Because it was the little things. It was the nuances. It was the configurations that were, set and so you have to go in and provide that vigilance the the metric that i've seen is that an adversary lives in a network for like 200 days before ever being discovered wow. 200 plus it's like days. A, a virus in your body yeah and so you know what they're doing they're they're low and slow and they're trying to figure out you know what the environment looks like well then we should be doing the same thing right is trying to go uh, methodical, understand where those vulnerabilities are. That's what I mean by top-down security. Where are those little gaps, right? It's not enough to just be like, oh, well, I have endpoint protection. Uh, you know, I have, I have antivirus, next-gen anti... Well, cool, but how is it configured? Like, what are your workflows? Do you have it set up to specifically, you know, close those gaps that are all the you, most likely to no, pose those risks? All so, you got to do is download it. Right. Come on. <laughs> don't tell me you don't have- <laughs> press play, right? The easy yeah. button. Yeah. Well, that that's a tough job. That's a tough job for sure. Uh, uh, and so in a way, Shadowscape is kind of like a financial advisor where if, you know, you get a customer and you can pick a product that fits their needs versus, yeah. you know, one one service that you provide and you sell that service to the same customer base over and over. So the, the main thing with, with Shadowscape is we are an intelligence-driven security company. And I, I, I uh, consider myself an intelligence guy before I'm a cyber guy. That's my background. And when you think about intelligence, what are we doing? All we're doing, we're not, I'm not going to provide you certainty. I'm going to reduce uncertainty. That's okay. what intelligence does. But that's what financial forecasting does. So anything, that's any what weathercast, yeah. you know, yeah. that's what all these things do, trying to help you make better decisions. Yeah. Again, a difficult sell. A difficult sell. <laughs> it's, it's so much easier to say, I'm going to remove all of your uh, problems yeah. <laughs> versus I'm going to limit your some of your problems. That's right. And, and help you can you. still get hurt, but hopefully not very often. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> it would make it a lot easier for you to understand, you know, what's what's most likely and what to do about it. And once we can figure out what to do about it, you'll get to a point that's acceptable where it costs more to do something than to do nothing. That's probably where we want to stop. But sure. You know, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that, well, we'll just, we'll just take care of it for you. And I've lost sales to those guys for sure. And those guys, and no kidding, you know, three, uh, three weeks after, that client that we lost to the guys that are, yeah, we'll just take care of it all for you got hacked. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's their fault, sure. but the idea that, Oh, I can just go in and, and stop things from happening. Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. On that note of background, 
Yeah. We're going to jump into that if that's okay with Let's you. Let's go. Okay. Because <laughs> we want to talk about your background. You have an extensive background. Uh, so, James, so going way, way back, where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up right here in Boise, Idaho. Boise, I, Idaho. Uh, you know, it's funny coming back to this part of town because I grew up like five, ten minutes from here. Gotcha. What is that? What, what high school is that? Is that Capital? Centennial. Cent- you oh. went Centennial from I here? I did. I went to Centennial. I, was, I grew up on Five Mile and used it. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And your family, you were an only child, one of many. I'm the youngest of four kids. My, my sister's the oldest, okay. two older brothers, and then myself. And always just in this area, right? Born and raised. Born and raised. Okay, cool. What year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 2002. Okay, that's when we graduated. That's when we graduated. Oh, really? Yeah. We went to Eagle, both of us. And I don't know why we're not playing golf. <laughs> well, let's talk about your your growing up and kind of the experience you had. So you're the youngest of four. Uh, what did your parents do? Uh, so my father, he he's who uh, he moved here. That my both my parents moved here from California. So he moved here in the the seventies, uh, working for Morrison Knudsen, which was a Huge development company at the time. Um, He was, uh, he actually worked for their development company. So it was called MK Development and uh, was like vice president of finance. Um, And then around 1990-ish, he started a um, construction contracting business that grew. He he kept that going for about 19 years. There's a a flooring company, a... uh, you know, really artisan uh, stair company that was part of that. And so he ran that for about 19 years here. And then uh, around the the 2008 crash, um, you know, things started kind of falling uh, apart. And I think he was like, well, I guess this is reading the writing on the wall time for me to take things at least semi-retire. Yeah. Yeah, So So that means you're like eight, probably when he starts that. You probably barely was remember, about yeah. Uh, I, Morris and Knudsen. It's yeah. I I remember just a few little uh, events, yeah. But okay. I I remember uh, quite a bit when he started that company up. It was, it was crazy. That's fun. awesome. I I love that he has that experience because that leads into a, a number of questions that I have about you growing up because he was a company man. Yeah. For a large company, right? And fairly high up. Yes. And in a large company. Yes. Um, probably doing well. I mean, you're a vice president of finance. He was finance. doing well. Yeah, doing for well, MK, yeah. and you're doing well. I mean, you've been to the MK Nature Center, right? It's a big company. Yeah, well, MK, they were, they were the original big company of Idaho. Yeah, they were. Really. Before Simplot? They were kind of together with I Simplot, would right? say, yeah. I mean, they, 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 were, they were a force to be reckoned with, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. And they had massive uh, government yeah. jobs. And, massive. You know, International, dams, yeah. Huge. They, uh they had a, a bit of a fall from grace, I think. Yeah. And I think that's around the time that, that Your dad. uh, dad's like, well, <laughs> it gets time for, for something else. So. <laughs> so, and that's awesome because what I would, what I'm always curious is the, the input your parents had in choosing your future career, because sometimes you'll have a parent that's a company person, you know, your dad, if he's a company guy his whole life and he'll say to you, James, Find a good company, work for that company the rest of your life. That is safety. That is protection. Is that what your dad said to you? Because ultimately he went and ran his own business for 20 years too. But then he had uncertainty near the end and said, yeah. you know, so as you were growing up, did your dad or your mom ever say to you, look, James, go out on your own? Or did they ever give you advice or 
influence you one way or the other? Um, you know, I'm going to catch flack for this. Um, I think by the time uh, my parents were, you know, it was time to make those decisions, um, they, they had moved on to other things. So okay. there was, I mean, my dad, uh, definitely, he would talk about all the, the great things. He really loved being a company man. And um, before everything kind of went crazy with that company, um, they were really good to their employees, MK. And they, they really kind of treated them like family. He loved it. Um, and then, uh, there, any, anybody that knows the sordid past of, of MK knows that, you know, someone came in and really kind of took things off the deep end. And, and he worked for them in their golden age. He did. Yeah. When they were at their top. Yes. And, and he was at the top almost of, yes. of that. So that must've been a great time for him. It was, I think it was really painful for him, uh, by the way, you know, things ended up oh, along with, you know, almost everybody that had, had been part of that. But uh, when you love a job and you love what you're doing, um, it's really, really hard to, uh, to move on to something else. And then, you know, then he, he went on to entrepreneurship and starting his own company. And, um, you know, just like anybody, any other entrepreneur, it was a grind for a long time. And, uh, you know, he, he reached a point where he was really loving what he was doing there for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, both times, I mean, he's very well qualified. Um, he, he really came from a past that was tough. And so I think the, the influences he would talk about all the great things, uh, about the, uh, the company, but he also, you know, showed me that, you know, you can build, uh, what you want. You know, and he came from a pretty tough background and he was like the first in his family to ever go to college. And, you know, he worked his way through college, was working at a, uh, a steel company and he realized, hey, all these guys that are telling people what to do have MBAs. I should go get one of those. <laughs> so he applied to UCLA and didn't even really think it was a, you know, he didn't realize that it was kind of a big deal and got in and put himself through uh, through that and, and, uh, got a job with MK. So, um, you know, he really worked his butt off and it, it was a good example that he, you know, he'd, he'd seen the, the benefits to both to being a company man, having a solid job, but you know, he, he was just a tenacious guy. And we used to joke, like just the example that he used to set that was kind of unconscious, uh, at the time, but we always joke about this time he was like trying to get this couch down into our basement. My brothers and I are wrestling with this thing and we're like, dad, stop. You cannot get this thing down the stairs. You would have to saw this thing in half. And his response, next thing out of his mouth is, well, go get my damn saw. <laughs> <And we're> like, <laughs> this <What>? will happen. <laughs> he, he, he saws this thing in half. No, he didn't. He sawed the couch in half. We take it down in two pieces. He he puts it back together with like truss plates. Oh uh, gosh! And then just staples the fabric on the, the couch was down. I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. I know that they sold that house. I'm couch sure date. they had to leave the couch. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes with that nice couch there that's 30 years old. So yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> that's funny. Well, okay. So, do you remember having any jobs growing up in your youth? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because like you said, I was around eight when he started it. I was cleaning up construction sites, 
you know, from 10 years old, 11, 12, um, just going out, sweeping things up, throwing stuff into trash piles. And then, uh, you know, I did a bunch of odd jobs around and kind of, uh, as an apprentice to some of his, uh, his workers, I did, I was a painter's apprentice for a while. Um, I did a little bit of, uh, framing stuff with some of his framers at a very young age. And, um, growing up, uh, I was, you know, when I say that my parents were kind of letting me do my own thing, I was also super (laughs) tenacious and sort of argumentative, I guess. Um, and so they just kind of knew that I was going to do what I wanted to do. Um, I was in a, a band and, and at 15, I wanted to, you know, buy a new amp. And so I just went and got a job at Burger King for a few months that my, my friends were working at. And then, uh, and then uh, all through high school, I was a delivery driver for Papa John's. And it was awesome. I loved that job. I still look back at that job as one of the best I had. Just kind of going around listening to music, delivering that's, pizzas. That's it. Never got tired of pizza. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just no responsibility, really. Not a whole lot of customer interaction. Yeah. So. Where's that amp now? That amp's still in my office. There you go. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's worth it. Then, yeah. Right? I, same with, yeah, I bought a really nice guitar. It was like 900 bucks. It still hangs on my wall. and. Only hangs on your wall? Well, I don't play electric as much as I, I, see. I do. So, you know, we were, my first band was like an, a Metallica cover band. So we thought we were, you know, a bunch of badasses and stuff. And my style has definitely gone the acoustic route. Yeah, <laughs> my softened a Elder age, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So uh, the blue collar jobs, did that ever appeal to you? Um, <laughs> You know, I... Uh, I didn't give a whole lot of thought in high school. I mean, I'll be honest. I know that, you know, a lot of guys come in and they tell this, these focused stories. And honestly, in high school, um, I was a pretty smart kid. But unfortunately, I was not, there were not a lot of expectations on me. And I just floated through high school. I didn't have to try. And I never really gave it any thought what I was going to do. In fact, I graduated high school, and that summer, I went to my dad, and I'm like, should I, like, apply to college or something? Like, we hadn't even talked about it. I think back to it and how insane that is to me. But he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that probably is a good idea. Really? Now, Uh, why? Why do you think that is? Your um, dad was a college graduate. Yeah. um, You know, I I was the fourth kid. I think after the other three kids, they were just like, I don't know, whatever. They'll figure the damn thing out. You know, now, did so. your older siblings go to college? Yeah. Um, my my sister did. Uh, my brother did. My older, immediately older brother didn't. Um, and, you know, he was in his younger years uh, a bit of a, a handful, I think, too. So that probably contributed to uh, – yeah, James will figure it out. Just you know, uh, but but at the time I remember graduating, you could get into college. A lot there was a lot of options getting into college. I'm sure you had. I got grades. into Boise State. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there's no huge rush. You could and, get in at any time. And like I said, I didn't do terrible in high school. I just didn't try. Right. And uh, but I was able to pass tests. Sure. So I was smart enough to at least pass the tests and everything. And so I had decent grades. And my dad's like, yeah, maybe apply to Boise State and see if you get in and. So I did, and I, 
I got in, but I still, I didn't know what I was doing. Did it feel like a waste then? It was a, well, it, it was a waste academically, but it, you know, it taught me uh, some pretty valuable lessons. And so, you know, the number one thing was, oh, shoot, in college, you have to try. I had no study habits. You know, I just, I was running around the mean streets of Boise, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I was doing what I wanted to do. I never gave any of that (laughs) stuff a thought. It just, and, uh, you know, running around irrigation ditches and lighting things on fire. I don't (laughs) in college. No, he's no. saying in high school. That's what <laughs> yeah. this is his preparation for college. Yeah. You know. So I got to college and it was just um yeah, you had to try. And and I really didn't know what I was doing. Like they they made you declare a major and I declared communications. Had no idea why. I'm the just general. like this is a general yeah. whatever. Um a lot of things I would have done in retrospect, but my second semester uh I I didn't fail. I quit. And, you know, I think that that's a huge reflection of how I was at the time. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was kind of a depressing part of my life. Like I had, you know, I, I had good friends and in high school and, you know, people were kind of going on doing their thing. And I was realizing that, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of direction and I had these I, I don't know. I just had like these ideas that I would do big things, but put like no thought into how I would accomplish them. And, uh, so I was kind of depressed and, you know, like it, it was just a tough time. And then one of my friends, um, that summer after that first year of college, she was a couple years younger than me. Um, she joined the army national guard and, it was kind of like a light bulb, like, oh, that's really interesting. She didn't really strike me as that, but we were friends because, you know, once she came from kind of a tough background and I was always really struck by, she was always really trying to be good in spite of, you know, her hardships and things. And I thought that was so cool that she did that. And when, when she came back, um, this was like the summer or the, the fall of 2003, um, you know, she was, she was just a different person and super fit. So we started dating <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it just put that thought in my head. And I remember going on vacation with my parents. We went to the Kennedy space center and I saw John Glenn, uh, his uniform and he was a Marine. And I was thinking that's that it, it's, it was like an epiphany, like everything lined up. Like, I don't have to know exactly what I'm doing but number one the military kind of aligns with my beliefs and my my convictions of something bigger than yourself and it just seemed like all these successful people had so many opportunities and doors open to them um, you know once they served and the biggest thing to me was like someone needs to kick my ass (laughs) you know someone needs to get some discipline. In well, that's interesting that you got to that point because you, you described yourself as more of like a free spirit in high school, kind of, and not anti-authority, but just, you didn't want to be told what to do. Yeah. And, and then you got to the point in your life where, okay, yeah, maybe I do need some direction and maybe I do need some structure. Yeah. I needed that appeal to you. And I need, I, I recognize that. And, uh, it was funny. I had actually, 
a few months earlier walked into the Air Force office first, and I was like, what is the – I was just kind of full of piss and vinegar. I was like, what is the baddest branch? And they're like, yeah, that's across the hall. <laughs> they <laughs> said like, that. Yes, he did. <laughs> he was so funny, this guy. And I was like, oh, because I didn't know a lot about the military. And so I walked into the, the Marine recruiting office, and, uh, you know, this was that, that fall, and they gave me the ASVAB, and I didn't know anything about it, but I did really well. Is that like a test? That's the, the uh, like, armed services vocational occupational oh. battery, which essentially, I think that's what it, if that's what it stands for, then that was pretty impressive. Pretty yeah, impressive, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> it basically tests what jobs you're suited for. Um, within the armed services, within, within the armed the, services. Okay. Yeah. Within that, you know, so for the Marines, um, I did pretty well and they're like, Oh, this is, you're gonna, you can pick what you want, but pick one of these jobs that are, you know, higher as fab jobs. Like, like, uh, you know, they, they named some things and my recruiter, he's like, you know, what's awesome. My recruiter was a Marsoc sniper. And he's like, I used to have to watch over these guys, uh, in that we're in the intelligence field from like afar and I couldn't even know what they were doing in those trucks and I was like that sounds badass that's <laughs> pretty like, cool that's sniper that's what protection want, in a truck yeah so I was like okay that sounds awesome so yeah. I I went intel and they're like okay so an intel billet isn't going to open for like six months so cool your heels um but just that, just signing the, the dotted line was super life-changing for me just because before when I was kind of floating, like, what am I doing? Um, I just, I had this big, you know, sense of purpose. And I, then I started preparing. I was super, you know, out of shape. And, uh, and I'll give my dad credit because I'm sitting here painting my parents as like these hands off. But, um, you know, my mom is so awesome and just kind of free. She's the free spirit, you know, super happy all the time. Uh, but my dad is, he came and worked out with me every morning, uh, trying to get me in shape to, uh, to leave for the Marines. So, um, you know, they were super supportive. My mom was super freaked out, of course. Um, and I'll never forget, she, she's, she finally came to terms and she said something to the effect of, it's not right for me to expect other kids, uh, you know, to go fight for their country and not be willing to send my own or something like that. So as a frame of reference, that time, was that 2004, 2003? That was two, late 2003, yeah. Because at the time, World Trade Centers had been attacked Right. War in Afghanistan was going on. Yeah. I mean, there was we a just, lot of activity. just had invaded Iraq, yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot different than, you know, enrolling in the military now. Right. And before, it was happening. who knew what was going to happen, right? I mean, right. who knew what was going to get, who was going to get involved. And, and I so, expected joining the Marines that I would be involved. Yeah, deployed. Yes. In action. Yeah, tip of the spear, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's what I felt that I, I needed and wanted the time and and the military man is it's one of those things that you get out what you put into it um you know and and don't get me wrong there's a lot of a lot of people get the short end of the stick but uh for me it was the best decision i ever made that's really no interesting that's awesome it. to hear so tell me what did you do i mean you in six months you went into training Basic Wait, training. were you fit? Did you, with six months, was that enough? Did you go in and like feel good yeah i was good you, i was good okay. to go um i mean definitely 
probably one of the doughier recruits, but I was not like, you know, in the fat platoon or anything, which was cool. Um, so success the there. Doughier recruits. That's the first time that. I've heard that one. Or the yeah, fat, you know, I, know I mean, platoon. you know, guys that have been through a year, freshman year of college. Yeah. <laughs> and, freshman five. Then. Yeah, I was not, uh, you know, I was not cut from wood, but uh, that uh, that time in, in boot camp definitely kind of got me there and so yeah, boot camp is about three and a half months. Um, in Texas, or where did you go? I went to uh, Camp Pendleton, San Diego. Oh, um, San Diego. Yeah, okay. and uh, you know, I I kept dating that girl all through my time waiting, and then when I left, we just kind of said, "Let's just see what happens." Um, so yeah, that was about three and a half months, and then I left for um, combat training. So after you go to Marine boot camp, you go to combat training. And that's like three or four weeks. And it's just weapons, like big weapons and stuff. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> like boot camp sucks. Uh, MCT was awesome for me. It was just blowing stuff up and shooting guns and all kinds of stuff that a 20-year-old, you know, likes to do yeah. and gets excited about. Uh, and then while I was – so like my last month in boot camp – I had this drill instructor come down to my platoon. He says, McCarter, get over here. So I walk over. uh, Yes, sir. He's like, come with me. And he starts marching me across the entire, like, recruit depot. And he puts me in this room. I have no idea what's happening, by the way. He puts me in this room, and they put this test in front of me. And, by the way, I had this terrible fever at the time, too. And... In boot camp, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to get sick or draw attention to yourself because you don't want to get rolled back. You don't want to stay there a minute longer than you have to. So I'm, like, super achy and, like, sweaty. I don't know what was going on. But they give me this test, and it was, like, a made-up language. And so you had to pick out, like, these grammar patterns and stuff from this, like, made-up language like if this means the you know if this made up word means or this made up sentence means this then what does this made up sentence mean right and you had to pick out like these grammar patterns and things so i had no idea what was going on um i take the test all right and then marches me back to my platoon the hell was that <laughs> so and i went like 3 weeks and then finally he shows up again he's like come with me he's like okay okay so we start walking across the the recruit depot again he goes man you crushed that test and i go uh, oh <laughs> he's like you're gonna be like protecting the president's daughter or something i'm like what <laughs> awesome so he takes me to this master sergeant's office and this master sergeant's like all right uh so you did pretty good on this test and uh you know so you're going to be um going to monterey to be a cryptologic linguist and I was going, well, I'm an Intel guy. He's like, yeah, that's, it's the, your, that your is signals Intel. Intel. <laughs> All right. That is Intel. And I go, uh, you know, that drill instructor said I was going to be like protecting the president's daughter. He's like, what the heck? Shut up. All right. It's like <laughs> not even close. Like that, that, that drill instructor didn't even know what he was talking about either. So. I was a little let down that I wasn't going to be doing something cool like that. It had nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I ended up going to Monterey um, to the Defense Language Institute um, d- 
doing nothing but Korean for about a year and a half. Like translating, like learning? Learning Korean. It was like immersion. So all our instructors were Korean, and they get you to a pretty high level. Um, graduated there, and then I went to Intel school. How's your Korean now? Oh, it's terrible. It's so <laughs> funny how fast you lose it, you know? it's it, it comes back quick, which is nice, and I can still read it and infer certain things. But, um, yeah, so... But that time in Monterey was, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. Monterey, if you guys have never been to Monterey, it's, I lived right down in the, uh, well, I, I should back up. I mean, I lived in the barracks, but so that girl came to my first, uh, Marine Corps ball, um, Miss little Miss soldier girl where I proposed to her. And then, um, she, she got called up to Iraq. And so just before Christmas of 2004, um, she got like emergency leave, come home for a couple days. So we ran to the courthouse and got married. And so, (laughs) and so they gave me off base housing, which I didn't think they were going to do. But so I lived out in town, which was awesome. While my poor wife was in Iraq for (laughs) a year, three days after we got married. Um, So she got back about my last six months in Monterey and got to enjoy it a little bit, but she had a tough, tough time over there while I'm You're just living it living up, it off, up. Off, <laughs> off, off base. She didn't have the same accommodations in the middle of Afghanistan. And she's like, I'm married <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. She's in Iraq, but yeah, no, she's living in like a connex, <laughs> like getting mortared and stuff. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's cool. I woke up at 10 today. Yeah. I went to in and out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what did you do from there? I mean, where was the next step from after Monterey? Um, yeah, so Monterey, um, then I went to Intel School at Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas. Um, I was there for about three months. Um, and then I got stationed at Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, uh, at 3rd Radio Battalion. And, uh, so that's where we moved and I was only there for about five months until my first deployment, uh, which was the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit. And we, we, you know, you, you get on a ship, you're basically the world's 911. They have these muse floating all the time. It's like a a complete, you know, self-contained, uh, you know, battle, uh, unit that can go in and, and, uh, Anytime some, something big goes down, um, these mews are there to respond pretty much immediately. And there's like three or four at any given time around the world. Um, and your wife stayed in Hawaii at the time? So she stayed in Hawaii uh, at that time. I think she came back for a little while um, to be with family here in Boise. Um, but, yeah, she, she got to live up Hawaii a little bit. And... Uh, we were, I was all over the place there. I was the S2 chief, which is the intel chief. Uh, I was going to say, what does an intelligence officer do when you get deployed? Yeah, so on that ship, uh, you know, we, I, I, was, I was assisting the uh, S2 chief when we were um, stationed near, like we were floating near Korea. Um, so we were doing a lot of joint exercises with the Korean military. And so I was South his... Korea. his uh, translator but then i got attached to an an army military intelligence um unit that was there in in korea 
And so I left the ship for about four months and, uh, and was doing that there in Korea. And then when they came back to run a bunch of joint exercises and stuff, they kind of, they picked me up and, uh, I went on to, uh, to some of our other exercises at some of the other countries, um, Australia, Philippines, and we were based out of Okinawa, Japan. So that was about a seven, eight month deployment. Uh, then my next deployment, um, so I went back to Hawaii six months. Then I deployed to the Philippines, uh, which was actually a combat deployment uh, in the South Philippines. So I didn't really love being a linguist. Because, yeah, you're just kind of translating for people. Yeah. yeah. And I joined the Marines to do cool stuff, like right? That weapons training. Exactly. Put that so into use. That's what I wanted to do. So I lobbied to get on a SIGINT support team, which is basically reconning signals, right? Okay. Um, so I was attached to, we were attached to an army green beret team, uh, down there, just myself and three Marines to provide uh, signal Intel support to those. Is that like intercepting transmissions, like that kind of thing? I, it is what it is. I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, you can't say more. Okay. Uh, I, I can say to you, I don't know that I'm going to put it on a podcast, but, uh, yeah. So providing signals, Intel support, um, and we did we did really well. It was an awesome deployment. I loved it. You know, our command would have hated it. We all had like beards and wore our uniforms like ten times and kind of doing the the army green beret style. You know, and uh, and it was crazy down there. I mean, they're shooting at each other all the time. These in the Philippines. Yeah, I don't understand what so what it's role like, the United States had in that. We were there to advise and assist. So. Operation Enduring Freedom was the Afghanistan mission. We were serving in Operation Enduring Freedom Philippines. So it was oh. part of the same mission. In fact, some, terrorists. Yes. So there's Abu Sayyaf group, uh, Moro Islamic Liberation Front, which is the MILF, which we always... always <laughs> uh, uh, Moro National Liberation Front. So there's uh, several groups down there that were... Um, you know, labeled as extremists. And, and that's what we were there to do is to help quell that. And uh, so we were there to advise and assist, um, which the is Philippine government, the, the Philippine, Philippine Marines, okay. actually. Yeah. So um, and that's typically the role that, that like Green Beret teams um, do is is to work with the local militaries and populace and things like that. What, so, year, what year is this? Uh, I think that was 2008. 2007, 2008. Okay. And, uh, and so that, that was a good time. It was super exciting. Lots of action. Um, Are you shooting? I, I never actually had to, like, You're shoot supporting at anybody. Yeah. Um, we were always getting, you know, like, bullets. <laughs> and, like, they were just shooting all the time. It was crazy. Like, these tribes and stuff shooting. And then they... They'd have these giant firefights, like 400 yards from our position. And so we'd be, like, sitting in, at Hesco's wearing boots and board shorts and, like, our flak vest, and that was it, with, like, a saw, which is, like, a big, big machine gun. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just kind of reminding that every once in a while, if they'd get a little, little too close, you might send them a reminder. But, hey, this is not – don't – don't rope us into this. It was nuts. It was crazy town. So you're saying like the Philippine, Philippines Marines and the terrorists would be fighting and you're kind of just No. Like, you're there too. Okay. So no, it's not even the Philippine Marines really. They was the same thing. It was, I, like this is a whole podcast in and of itself, the politics that 
go on down there. It was like, like one of the big firefights that was that was near us was like a drug lord and the mayor and I these see. two warring factions. So the Marines weren't even involved. No, I see. No, we were. So you're kind of just there on the on the. It on was the side it then. was off mission. It wasn't yeah. part of our. You know why we were there. You're like, hey, we're here, but don't come close. Yeah, don't. We're not going to get don't involved rope us unless into you really it. put. Yeah, and so and like yeah, so there's so much more I want to get into, but yeah, it was it was just crazy. So. And, and your mindset at the time was, I love this. I want to be. I loved doing it. this for the rest of my life. I loved it. Yep. And so uh, when I got back to the uh, battalion, though, they put me in the training cadre, and I was teaching. I was a sergeant at the time. Uh, by then, I was teaching the new Marines that came into uh, the battalion. And it's funny because by then it was like 2008, 2009. And just over those five years, I'm like, how are these snot-nosed kids getting out of boot camp <laughs> with this attitude? It's like like I was the old man of the Marine Corps. Or you were the guy right? that when you came in, you saw it. Like, oh, these jerks. Like, Why are they these little punks, jerks? right? I'm like, how'd yeah. you get out of the boot camp with that attitude? And they get to the fleet, and then they get their handed to them but um so i was teaching the new marines uh you know what we did how we did it how to do signals intel and uh and i liked it i really liked training but i missed doing stuff right um i was really close to my platoon at third radio we were we always hung out on the weekend and i think that's somewhat rare but everybody was going to different duty stations. They were going to do different things. And I was starting to kind of feel like, I think the most fun you'll ever have is a junior Marine. And now it's starting to feel kind of like a babysitting job. And we had hired this one company uh, to come do some training for us called NEK. And I noticed they were out of Colorado Springs, which I always thought would be Colorado would be a cool place to live. So I went and you know, I saw this guy's car and I'm like, Hey, are you guys hiring? And he's like, you know, we're actually looking for a cell phone guy. And I'm like, Mr. Cell phone guy right here, man. I mean, that's, that's my jam. And so I'd been teaching, you know, cell phone theory, like cellular signals theory and, and cell phone forensics for a while. And so I was like, that sounds awesome. So I applied there in uniform and I got the job. So I was like, all right, well, I guess that's my next deal. So and I you, was near the end of my enlistment term. Yeah, so. What did your wife, was your wife still in the, what branch was, was she? National, no, Army National Guard. Yeah, she was Army National Guard, but she transferred to the Hawaii Guard uh, when we lived there. And uh, she was she was about towards the end of her enlistment. Our enlistment ended the same year, and, uh, and she liked it. The Hawaii Guard was crazy, man. They... They're <laughs> because they're all locals um, as opposed to like regular armed forces in Hawaii, which are, we're all from somewhere else, but uh, Hawaii national guard had a lot of locals and guys would be showing up in like flip flops, like 20 minutes late and, you know, Island time stuff. And so it was, she had a pretty cool experience getting to know a lot of those people, but it was the same thing. She kind of felt like she squeezed the juice out of that experience. So she was ready you know, to go, you know, try something else. And so that's what we did. We moved to Colorado from there. So that was a pretty quick turnaround from, you know, loving where you're at, being deployed every now and then to leaving the armed forces. Yeah, but to private work. the job that I went to do 
was to do, you know, some of the things that uh, that you mentioned at the beginning was like teaching NATO special forces in Belgium and, you know, deploying around the world and doing in support of, you know, different missions. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. And I don't have like I loved deploying. I hated being in garrison, meaning being back at my battalion and dudes like yelling about haircuts and stuff like that is that that part of the the and i get it don't don't get me wrong i wouldn't change it but it's still a drag you know so i was like oh cool i'll get to do a lot of the you know similar stuff as a civilian get paid a lot better a lot better right yeah a lot better double probably at least yeah yeah. uh so it was it was a good deal i'm like this sounds like an adventure and it totally was um so that's what um what i did is when i got out i was doing a lot of their cell phone forensics training and i kind of got thrown into the hot seat at that job um one of our guys got deployed to afghanistan uh in support of one of their missions and so i was left to teach a lot of the intelligence driven operations training to these special forces guys like my first or second time in Belgium uh, teaching these guys in these, these super long comprehensive courses. And I didn't know a lot of any of this stuff. And what I really felt like I was bringing to the table with that job was a work ethic because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know anything about. And they'd be like, Hey, who can teach latent fingerprinting? Who can teach biometrics, explosive residue detection? I was like, yeah, I got all that. I can do that. And I didn't know Jack about any of it but i knew that i could learn quick um but i got thrown in the hot seat once teaching like biometrics and i had to teach it the next day because this guy got deployed to afghanistan and i didn't even know what it was i didn't know i was like what what is what are you guys doing with this like i kind of had a cursory understanding but i had no understanding of how they used it operationally and so i remember that night just staying up all night just cramming and trying to build this course and just panicking that like their senior staff was going to be there to sharpshoot it. And sure enough, the next day they're sitting there in the seat and I taught this biometrics course and the, the uh, army warrant officer that was part of the senior staff walks over. He goes, yeah, you did a great job. Uh, Anything I was going to say you mentioned. So good job. And I was like, got him. Got him. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) So I just, I was that guy. I I always just tried really hard to be that guy. If you had a hard job that I was the guy that you, you could call on. And that got me, you know, to be the team lead out there. And so I was out there. You say out there, is that in Belgium? In Belgium. Yeah. yeah. I was out there all the time teaching the, that, uh, you would fly from Colorado to Belgium or you you and your wife moved over there. No. So yeah, my wife was still in Colorado. I would just go back and forth. I, I think it, over a course of about two years, I did about uh, eight or ten iterations of that course, and it was it was awesome. It was a whole bunch of just crazy, you know. It was all based off of like sensitive site exploitation, which is kind of like crime scene investigation in like an hour, um, because there's no front line, you know, in the Middle East, and so there was, you know, having to act like cops in a lot of ways you know investigators and so they had to gather evidence and and things like that so they would have to grab this stuff they would have to do latent fingerprinting to you know try to 
you know, look at weapons and stuff like that, whose fingerprints are on these. They had to do explosive residue detection to check out, you know, who's been handling explosive material and all kinds of stuff like that. And I loved it. I, I really was, was happy doing that stuff. It was exciting. It was, it was awesome teaching NATO allied forces, um, all the different countries and their, their armed forces are so crazy in their own way and funny and just, just great people. And in Belgium, is that the headquarters for NATO? It is. Okay. So we taught off-site um, at a different place since it was Special Forces okay. training. That's 10 years, you said. So about 2,000? Two years. Two years. Two okay, years. so yeah. two years, you had eight horses? Uh, eight to 10 courses, so that's, yeah. You're traveling a lot then. Yeah, yeah, it was it was nice. I, I was pretty upset when I didn't get bumped up to first class in those days, but it didn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. Because I was teaching that. I was teaching a lot of um, law enforcement in cell phone forensics as well. Um, and then I started teaching for the uh, State Department Anti-Terrorism Assistance Task Force. And so we were teaching foreign law enforcement, uh, cell phone forensics, and, and things like that all over the world. Um, you know, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, um, Middle East, Europe, lots of, and then a whole bunch of places domestically uh, as, you know, supporting both FBI at their national forensics labs and the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force um, here domestically. So it was, it was exciting. It was a really rewarding um, experience, but my director at the time said, hey, I'm going to start this uh, cybersecurity company. And, you know, it would be pretty awesome if you were a part of it. And uh, so that's how I ended up going that route. So now, that, that, was, that was 2011, 2010-ish? Uh, that was about 2000. It was 2011 when he left to do that. I started my own company for a short time, just consulting company, doing cell phone forensics for about two years. And then officially came on with them uh, like end of 2012. I was going to say, I was like, there's probably non-soliciting agreements there. And that's probably why that two-year break. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, You had to do something else in the meantime before mm-hmm. he could hire you over there. That's, that's right. Yeah, we, you know, wanted to do it the right way. So, um, yeah, went off to, to do that. And I was just doing it on my own, doing a lot of the uh, State Department stuff, um, which was you know, awesome as well. So always teaching these. With those contracts, like we've had someone else deal dealt with government contracts. Being a veteran, does that help you get those contracts? I mean, how did you get into those state de- state department contracts? Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. So a lot of times, you know, these larger companies too, they have to find a sub um, that'll be like a, a small veteran owned business. Um, so. I would, I would look for a lot of these companies that needed, you know, that won the contract, but didn't have anybody to fill it, which happens pretty often. And so, um, that's basically how I would do those. So I wouldn't go for the contracts themselves because nobody knew who I was. and I didn't have the track record. I'd go to these companies that would win them and then turn around and go, okay, we won this. Now what do we do with it? So, and that was just a lot of that was through the contacts, you know, that I had, I had made through my career at this point. But the whole plan was that you knew two years from now, unless something crazy happens, I'm probably going to be working with this director. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That was always the the goal is to, uh, to end up over there. In fact, I was the first employee, 
um, at that. So he just worked solo for those two years or he was doing something. Yeah. He was pretty much solo. Yeah. I mean, his daughter was doing stuff for him like graphic design work and, and things like that. So, you know, she, she could probably claim that title, but I was like the first full-time employee. Cause that was always the plan. And, um, so yeah, once we, uh, that's a startup, right? I mean, Oh, it was startup. <laughs> it was a startup. It was sitting on Pelican cases and like, <laughs> dumpster diving for desks and stuff sure. and, and we grew that big i mean it 2013 then so 2011 is when you left or he left in 2011 and you started with yeah. him in 2013 yep yep that's right so um yeah it was like early 2013 and uh yeah so it was just a uh, few of us and we just kept growing and um it grew into a big big company but it was tough i mean it had its challenges it was it's a bittersweet time in my life i was there for like seven years um yeah so it was it should have turned out better than it did i'll put it that way and i feel like we we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory uh and i say we i mean i couldn't have done anything different um but you know we we grew it big i mean we went uh we rang the bell on the nasdaq and uh yeah, we we had about I think a hundred employees or or so, and the company didn't go under or anything. It uh, it actually sold to Deloitte like a couple years ago, um, and I had left just before that. But long story short, um, you know, I really none of us walked away with anything. By the way, that so it, you had equity, I had equity. Then it went. Then it became publicly traded. I was going to say, that's what you mean by ringing the bell on the NASDAQ, right? Yeah, but it, it was publicly traded before that. So essentially, um, they sold against my wishes, but, you know, I was a director. Um, they sold to a, a company that uh, was a holding company, essentially. Um, they only had a few assets that actually didn't really end up going anywhere. So they changed their name to our name. And uh, just called it like Route Nine B Holdings, and that's what became the public. Well, that's what all of our, you know, equity had rolled right. over to. Um, so nine months after they rang the bell, um, apparently, so there was a CEO of that holding company. Um, he stepped down after we rang the bell and everything, this was like January, 2017, I think. And, uh, and appointed my CEO of the LLC that we started as the CEO. Well, he, you know, quickly realizes that he's just inherited a sinking ship. That the holding company wasn't in a good place. It was not in a good place at all. So the holding company sells off its assets, including our company, to a private firm. Now, who made that decision? Was that your the director? I mean, the guy that you yes. worked with? Yeah, he made that decision. It's like, okay, we got to sell this off. Yeah. Yeah. And so that includes you, which is, what was the name of All the company? All of us, yeah. So it was called Route 9B. Route 9B. Yeah. And, you know, we were a pretty high-speed um, cyber company. Um, and I was working threat intelligence at that time. And then uh, I got appointed to um, vice president of training. Um, and it was, it, in a lot of ways, there was a lot of, um, promise there, but I think there were some serious 
management issues, which led to the way things ultimately turned out and, you know, some of the employees uh, issues. But yeah, so they sold to the private company and so they were public and then this part got sold off. So it became private again. Yeah. So it was private again. So the company still existed. Nothing changed really operationally, except for all of us that had, you know, equity from the early days now had equity in this empty bankrupt shell of a holding company. Interesting. Cause the asset was sold, but your equity doesn't, you don't have any equity in this. Exactly. Up oh my gosh. So it's like, so lose, I stayed lose. such a lose. I lose. stayed. Yeah. And, and I remember like, you know, for a long time, it was just, it was, it was really in a lot of ways, um, me and the CEO and, you know, when things were coming down, he, he told us what was going to happen. Um, again, I always tried to be the guy that when stuff is hard, I'm the guy you talk to. Um, and that's why I always got a lot of crappy jobs. Um, but I prided myself on that because when it's tough, I'm, I wanted to be that guy. Um, he came, you know, he told us, and I remember thinking, like, I'm not even going to waver. Like, I'm upset, but th- what's that going to do? Uh, it doesn't change anything. And he walked around shaking hands, and he pulled me in close. He's like, hey, I'll make it up to you. And I was like, I know, man. I'm not even going to worry about it. And, uh, yeah, that's not how it went down <laughs> uh, at all. So, I'll put it that way. So, um I, I stuck around for a f- few years, about two years, um, thinking like, you know, it's still a job and it's still a, something that I helped build. There were a lot of things that were re- happening that were really, really frustrating. Um, not the company that I set out to start, but I always kind of had this hope that like maybe these new investors would come in and, you know, look under the hood a little bit and go, oh, we got to we got to tune this thing up. Right. And so I was always kind of thinking like, yeah, it's bad right now, but somebody's going to want to want, you know, look into their investment and start tooling around, make things a little bit run a little bit better. Uh, and that never really happened. So around 2019, um, at this time they had put me back into the threat intelligence position, director of threat Intel. Um, so I, I had been the vice president of training. I've been working hard to build that program into something beyond just a bunch of, you know, presentation material. And uh, part of this, the benefit to us selling that private equity firm was um, they injected a lot of capital. And so they were able to hire people they wanted to hire. And they hired somebody that they, that was in the beltway in DC and they thought could bring a lot more, um, business to training. So they wanted to put him in as a VP of training. So they put me back over to threat Intel, which I was not happy with, but at the same time I loved threat Intel. Um, so that's what I was doing for a while, but you know, I was being paid VP money. And so at some point they realized that, Hey, this guy's really expensive. And they were like, hey, you know, we'd like you to move back to, to Colorado. And at this point, I've been. Where, where were you living? Yeah, where were you living? I moved back to Boise somewhere okay. in there. Yeah, at some point. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that. Yeah, I, I moved back to Boise. It's uh, remote then. Somewhere in the, the middle of that. Yep. And I went to Colorado all the time. I was always back and forth. Um, but, you know, we had kids by then. Um, we have, you know, all our grandparents are here. So we're like, let's move back and, and everything. So, um, yeah, they, they were like, we'd like you to move back to Colorado. Um, and I was like, you know, at this point, I'm just, I'm really not, not really loving it anyway. That. Yeah. This is like a deal breaker. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, well, this, this is not, <laughs> this, this is not something I want to put my neck out for anymore because it's become somewhat clear to me that that was a one way street. That's what it felt like. And so, yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm not really interested in doing that. And they're like, okay, well, <sighs> so it was sort of an amicable, amicable breakup, I guess I'll put it that way. And so uh, at the time, I was just kind of floating around trying to figure out. But what I happened? Wanna... I mean, this is your friend, the guy that you'd worked with forever. Um, and he was the director. He left NEK, I think. Yeah. I mean, you guys, how's that relationship now? Not great. Not great. Yeah. It's complicated. That's you my don't seem like status. A, like you're going to be like a jerk to people. I mean, you've been very political here. I mean, you know, you're not talking trash about anyone. Yeah. Um, but clearly it was kind of, you got hosed a little bit and whether it, how much was his fault or not. So it's tough to maintain that, but you're saying that you probably say hi to him if you saw him, but you're not going out to golf with him. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's one of those things that um, I would have expected, you know, my dad always used to talk about how he in, in the corporate world in his own career, he was loyal to a fault. And I feel like I, I don't want to say that it's a mistake, but I, I have that trait, I think, a little bit. And I just had this somewhat, I guess, misguided belief that if you show somebody that you're willing to go to bat for them, they'll go to bat for you. And that's ultimately not really how it turned out. And so it's not one of those things that I'm like, you know, going to harbor this lifelong animosity because it's not worth it to me, number one. And number two, I'm the one that put that judgment right. on him, right? You put, you, those are your expectations. That's my expectations, right. right? And so it just, okay, that's not the relationship. I understand that. Now. Is he still there? So he now, so he uh, like there. I said, they, roll, they, they sold to Deloitte. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, none of them really made any money from it. The the private company that owned them sold that entity to Deloitte. So pretty much all of them work for Deloitte now. So that means, uh, I mean, it wasn't like a situation where he's like, okay, he made a bunch of money and he, you got screwed over. It was like, he didn't make any money either. No, I mean, he didn't yeah. make it. I mean, he probably did well in at, uh, at Deloitte okay, you sure. know, and, and got, you know, some perks and that's cool. I mean, he should, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not faulting anyone for, for any of that. So yeah, it's not like, yeah, he, he just ran off with the bag and yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and that's why I don't harbor, you know, this, this lifelong animosity or anything. There's a lot of things that I would have expected to be handled differently um, here and there, but ultimately, yeah, I had higher expectations, but it wasn't like fraudulent backstabbing. It wasn't like anything so overt. It's like I say, I, there was a lot of times that I th I figured uh, he'd go to bat for me more than uh, than I would. That's it. You yeah. know, I would I would have expected better if it were me. Yeah, I would have done things differently for sure. 
Um, there were a lot of managerial issues uh, at that organization. I think in a lot of ways it was toxic for some people. Um, luckily, I was far from the flagpole, so I didn't have to to deal with that day in and day out. But there, a lot of the managerial issues just came from just vague expectations that it was like, well, we have an idea about what we want. We just haven't put it into words. And if you don't figure out what that is, then you're failing. You know what I mean? And that's setting your employees up for failure. Right. That's not right. right. You know? So I learned a lot of really great lessons about what not to do at that organization. Right. Um, and, and, you know, some good, good lessons on what works, but a lot of stuff at what, what doesn't work. And it's what got me to where I am now. You know, I, I, Part of why I was like, I think I'm done because I was getting a lot of pushback from the way I wanted to uh, conduct intelligence-driven cyber operations anyway. And so I'm like, that was part of the decision of why why am I going to stick around if all I'm getting is grief for, you know, trying to be an innovator when it was like, no, we know how to do things. Well, you haven't done it for 10 years, right? This is a dynamic industry, Okay. I, I really subscribe uh, to sort of the Steve Jobs. He said something to the effect of, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people and they tell us what to do. And I, I think there's a lot of You were of the smart person. It wasn't just me. Yeah. Like we had a ton of, we had so much talent there that I feel like was kind of wasted, sure. you know, just so much talent. Uh, and it was kind of like, just do what we tell you to do. And that's hard when it's like, but there's way, like, that's not how the industry is doing it now. And there's better ways to do it. We've moved in different directions, but, you know, it, it wasn't really a, a committee. And don't get me wrong, the Steve Jobs quote is kind of a broad brush to paint with, but it needs to be a two-way street, that communication, right? Um, so, a lot of that stuff wasn't happening. So I, I started Shadowscape in late 2019. Now, was there any non-compete? Um, yeah, but they basically fired me. Okay, so you were, you were fine. Yeah, and I wasn't really, you know, they can't stop me from doing cybersecurity. I wasn't going after their customers or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there was a non-compete, but, you know, I was trying to do things that uh, they weren't interested in doing anyway. So it wasn't directly competing is what you're no, saying? Yeah. No, no. Was uh, it scary to start? Yeah, S super scary. I mean, you're a very talented guy. You had a lot of really good experience. You probably could have found some pretty sweet jobs. Yes, and there was jobs that I was looking at, but ultimately um, what I wanted to do there, um, and I didn't get the chance, uh, it didn't really exist in the marketplace. And that's where I really felt like I, I could shine. And so that's why I was like, I'm just, I'm going to try to build it myself. What you saw really was an opportunity to start something that didn't exist in the marketplace. And uh, you saw that, that was something you wanted to do. And you thought really, this is a place where you could build something that didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I started it and, um, you know, I, I'd still talk to some of the people at, at Route Nine B, and one of the guys um, is like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm out, I'm leaving." I was like, "What, what are you going to do?" And he's like, "I don't know, maybe start my own, my own thing, just like an IT type company or something." 
I was like, oh, well, um, if you're interested, I mean, I'm thinking of starting something up. And, uh, and he's like, well, let me know what it's, what it's about. And, uh, he actually came on with me and, uh, at late 2019, he's been with me since then as well. Is that as a founder? I mean, are you um, equity not there? really. He's got a little bit of equity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely wanted him to have, you know, skin in the game and, but and you're primary else. shareholder by far. Yeah. I mean, I'm putting all the money in and, and yeah. taking all the risks. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's been with me and we just, uh, we rolled with it, but obviously covid hits yeah that's interesting how would that affect a business like oh yours? it was it could not be great not good yeah so because they're cutting expenses and security they're like well we'll just take this risk a little and, bit and longer. that's the thing it was like people were like and, and it's crazy because the risks really started to escalate as people started leaving you know their uh their networks and working from home but at the same time it was like people it was like, I don't need, that's the last thing I'm. They're just going to increase their about. gambling, right? That's what they're going to do. They're going to yeah. say, I, I would rather take this risk on a gamble that I'm going to get hurt. And they were all, everyone was freaking out too. Like, I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know about keeping my doors open. The last thing I'm going to do is be spending money on cybersecurity. Sure. So, yeah. Well, when you're at Shadowscape, do you typically go after larger corporations, medium-sized, small business? What's, what's a, so definitely in the, the early days, we were focusing on small, medium businesses. And but that's got to that, be like 20 employees plus. Yes. It's still yeah. small, medium I mean, business. But. Small, medium business, like from a federal definition, not an Idaho definition, right? Because, right? Right. Um, yeah, you have like five employees go get endpoint protection. And, right. you know, it doesn't make sense to hire someone like us. But, yeah, we were trying to really at the time bring enterprise level security to small and medium businesses. And, uh, you know, and we, we had a really good methodology for doing that. Um, but it was, it was tough, you know, people weren't, so we, we granted I had been in the startup space before with the, the previous organization, but starting it on your own from scratch, you weren't doing sales before. No, yeah, like, exactly, yeah, right. exactly right. Sales, marketing, that's you now. And that's everything, man. It's crazy. When you start a company, most people don't realize that the job that you set out to do, you're going to be doing that like 25% of the time. Right, right. Like everything else is figuring out your messaging and your branding and sales and, you know, how you're going to scale and all these other things. It's like things. revenue. If you don't get revenue, I mean, Brandon's a sales guy. So he's like, yeah, revenue. If you, why? What are you doing? If you don't, if you're yeah. not trying to get revenue, then what are you exactly. doing? Exactly. Yeah, and it, that's. Yeah, it, I I think a lot of entrepreneurs think like, oh, cool, I have this great idea. I'm going to start a company. Well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is, you know, I I've been drinking from the fire hose since we started, and I I know that uh, I just keep learning, and I've I've it's the school of hard knocks for sure, and I'm. I'm really happy that we exist still, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was tough through that time. And I've learned again, a lot of things about what not to do. And, and I think part of COVID we panicked a little and went, we need to broaden our offerings. And, uh, and so my director, the guy came on with me, Mike, he's like, Hey, you know, I worked for a managed service provider, a managed it company. I can do all this stuff that we don't really market. And I was like, great, let's just put on our website. And then so you're selling the product. Yes. Yeah, so not yeah. the, the services or, right. and products. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, great, let's just throw that on the website. And then if somebody needs that, then cool, then we can do all that stuff. Well, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> and for, 
you know, it sounds good on paper, but you got to realize that um, when you, in every like entrepreneur course and, and thing I've read since then, you know, has articulated why that's a bad idea and why you need to establish a beachhead and, you know, go at it that way is, yeah, it's great that we have something to offer to everybody, but you're not just increasing your customer opportunity, you're increasing your competition. Uh, sure. So we were then competing with every Tom, Dick, and Harry that had some IT company that was more established, had more resources, more sales guys. And so all we had done is watered down what makes us special. And that was that's like mistake number one that I made as an entrepreneur. Is that still on your website? No. <laughs> it's I've moved all that stuff up. So I, I've... I've realized my sin and, uh, and Repented. I'm paying for it. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I like to chalk it up, uh, like Thomas Edison coming up with the filament, you know, he had to fail a hundred times and he's like, 10, oh, to figure out what didn't work. Right? That's right. That was 10,000. 10, yeah. 10,000. There's things no that way that's work. true, man. He's like embellished that. It was like 30. He's like, Oh yeah, I did. 10, uh, well, I think, <laughs> I think the story goes, it's like he had like, 30 people trying out like a hundred things. So it wasn't just him. It wasn't, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and, and one thing they tried like 80 different ways, Yeah, you know? And so anyway, yeah, but yes. And that's kind of how I feel is I that's how every figure out every, is. everything mm -hmm. that, uh, that doesn't work. But unfortunately those failures are expensive. You know, time is money. And uh, every time I'm doing something that is not, working you know that's costing us runway so that's why i'm like that's awesome that we still exist right because right. it's uh you know it was tough to to get here but um yeah so that was mistake number one and and we kind of went back if you know several months later um and went this is not what we set out to do we're all we're doing is competing with a bunch and look we have something awesome to offer that we're not seeing elsewhere so we need to start focusing on that and so we we kind of went backwards and and started focusing on what we set out to do in the first place which was intelligence driven cyber operations you know and really the main thing that we offer right now is um, security analysis consulting on that level so in a few different tiers, um, our main one is chief information security officer as a service. Um, like a so, fractional CISO. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it is, is a fractional CISO. Um, using the methodology, and we use our platform uh, internally right now. It's just not ready for, you know, us to just send it off uh, commercially yet, but it kind of so, allows us to beta test our own platform. Yeah. So I, um, I work with financial institutions. A lot of times I have to go through security audits and some, you know, it's a huge pain and whatever. Is this something I would do? I mean, I'm small though. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, I have two employees. So it's just me and one other guy. Um, is this something I would hire you for and say, Hey, they're wanting to go through all this security audit stuff. And I have security policies that I've hired us so for. Right. Um, is that the kind of thing or? Yeah, we certainly could. Yeah. Um, I mean, I find that it, it, it just matters how much risk somebody has. Like our smallest or organization, uh, a customer, um, other than like, you know, the few off family and friends stuff like, Hey, yeah, we'll do your stuff. But, um, main customers like 15 employees. And so that sounds small, but they do a, they do millions in mm -hmm. revenue every year. So their risk is high. So it's not really 
based on how many employees you have per se. It's it's a matter of do you have enough risk to justify, area, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a you know that's one of the big things that we we focus on is is a bunch of different metrics, how prevalent the threats are, uh, and how many opportunities for compromise are available, right? And once we kind of overlay those two things, we start to see hot spots line up and go, these are the areas that we need to fix right now. So um, when you're working with these people, I, I, is it, you talked about how you kind of did this comprehensive audit, you come up with recommendations. Are you, do you have like a contract where you stick with them for a while and work, work through these or is it like a one-time sale? Yeah. So the way that we typically do it is uh, we offer what we call a network security baseline evaluation. And it's kind of just, it's a vulnerability assessment. It's policy configuration review. Um, it's a few different things from kind of a 30,000 foot view. I see this one time. That's a product. So that's like one a one time, time mm-hmm. uh, assessment. Um, it's as far as uh, security go, goes, it's on the cheaper side. Mm-hmm. We don't really make any money from it um, because it's really to demonstrate, you know, what's there and, and what's not. Rarely do we go into an environment and go, yeah, everything's yeah, hunky-dory. Ne- yeah. mm-hmm. um, it's happened um, where we've been like, yeah, you guys got a good thing going. Uh, but usually we come up, look, here's, here's some things. If it turns into an ongoing, uh, subscription, like fractional CISO, then we just waive the cost of that. And that's just our initial engagement. Right. And over time, you know, we're working to mature your security program as a CISO would, but using our methodology of top-down security rather than, Hey, you know, compliance violations. Yeah, we'll get there. Cool. But let's stop an attack from happening from the top down. Um, and we'll mature their program over time. Right. But that takes analysis. Like I said, the typical cyber adversaries live in a network for like 200 plus days. We need to be applying that same kind of vigilance, right. To, uh, to our environments and, uh, in getting to know where those gaps are. That's what they're doing. That's all. That's exactly what they're doing. And I've, I've taught, you know, um, high level, uh, organizations and I won't say them by name, but, uh, that are very involved in our, our government where I've been like the, we have to enumerate your network. We have to understand what, what's there. I mean, are, do you guys, um, catalog anything about where your assets are? And they're like, Oh, it's too big. It's just too big. And I'm like, that is not an answer <laughs> because it's too big. That means you need to be cattle. How do you eat an elephant? Yeah. Right? right. And so, uh, yeah, that was my take is like, well, what do you think the adversaries are doing right now? They're working to understand your network on a fundamental level in order to prepare an attack. That's how it happens. Yeah. Right. And don't get me wrong. There's targets of opportunity, the riffraff floating around out there, the bots, things like that. Because that that those are the sorts of things where they're going. Um, let's uh, let's just cast a wide net and see what we get. And all those things I was talking about, uh, where somebody clicks something. Hopefully, they don't have things configured that are going to shut down our automated, you know, attack. But you know, there's plenty of of adversaries that I, we we approach it from the standpoint of sort of a crime scene, right? And what do we look for? We look for motive and we look for opportunity, right? The, the opportunity I can shut down, 
right? We can find those, those gaps and we can close those opportunities. But when it comes to motive, um, I need to make it so that it's so cumbersome. It's not worth the trouble. Right. That's where the motive is. It is it worth doing? Right. Right. I want to get it to where the answer is no. I can't stop you from wanting to hack a network, yeah. but I can make it where it's just the juice is. They're going to the get squeeze. in if they really want to, but you're trying to make it cost so much that yeah, it's not worth it. This get. is a target rich environment, right. and there's plenty of other organizations right. to, to spend your time and effort on. Yeah. You know, so even. And this is always just commensurate with the risk, right? Like there's Ocean's Eleven t- style, you know, these these badass guys. Yeah, okay, well, I'm not going to stop uh, that type of uh, event from taking over, you know, Bill and Ted's coffee shop. Right. But the cost of doing so would far outweigh their risks. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's probably never going to happen. So a question on your plans for Shadowscape moving forward. Do you have large goals? Do you want to grow it for the rest of your life? Would you like to bring on a partner and sell? Or do you, you know, what are your thoughts and, and hopes and aspirations for Shadowscape moving forward? Man, that's such a great question. I'll let you know as soon as I figure it out. Yeah, no, because we're, you caught us at like a, uh, a weird inflection point, right? Where we've got this this thing that, um, we're able to demonstrate the value and getting a lot of, a lot of traction. So we've been going through a, a period of, you know, courting, uh, you know, VCs and, and fundraising and building it our own. But we've also been talking to organizations that potentially want to joint venture, even what they call higher acquisition, right? Just Aqu- aqua hire, aqua hire, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we've had, you know, these discussions across the board. And to me, the biggest thing is I, I want to see what I've been building get built, you know, and not get watered down. And ultimately that's what's going to inform my decision. So we've even had, um, a really great offer for AquaHire, Um, and I'm just very concerned that you disappear, right? Your your yeah. dream doesn't isn't your dream anymore. Exactly. Someone else is gonna, and yeah. that they think that they're they're getting like a sock, right? And that's not what we what we do. And I, I don't have that's the compliance. It's for anyone. Yeah, the, the sock compliance. Yeah, okay, I'm I'm not sure what aqua hire is. I know when, you, what a when you're capital. hiring the company, but everyone all of his employees, him, they're all gonna get equity, like all they're not gonna probably get maybe some cash. Yeah. But it's gonna be equity in the company. And then they're just going to continue working on the stuff there. So they're just going to, they're really, they're buying the team. Right. So a, a company, like a private equity group. Typically, it's going to be more strategic. Someone that, it's, what yeah. he's doing is going to fit in with their plan. Okay, so let's say a larger security sure. group, right. group says, okay, we want to acquire. Because your team looks Shadowscape. good. Shadowscape. And we're going to, it's not the product as much as the, the team's really good. A lot of times that's what it okay. is. It's probably some yeah. of the product here. For okay, us, gotcha. they, they want, they like the, uh, like what we're, we're building. They want the project. They want us. Uh, and so that sounds cool. And um, if it, you know, the devil's in the details. Right? right. It's how much latitude you have. Yeah, exactly. Am I, am I giving myself a job? Mm-hmm. And then ultimately if they go, yeah, let's scrap this. You know, I don't, I don't like that idea. Um, do I have any autonomy or recourse right. for that sort of thing? So yeah, we're exploring a lot of different options. I, the biggest thing is I want to see, I, I want to see it um, grow and, and move forward. And whether that is working with a, a strategic partner or we build it all ourselves. I mean, 
what I told my wife when we started this, and she's been so supportive, you know, as we've lived on this like shoestring budget, right? Uh, is I go, I, I am, I'm not afraid of failing. I'm afraid of leaving anything out on the field. And so I just told her, I'm going to, as long as there's anything left for me to do, I'm going to, to do it. And moving forward to me, it's like, if, if I have a bird in the hand that, uh, that allows me to see this thing through and get built, um, then, then I, I'm very interested in that. If and that could be funding or it could be a good acquire exactly, partner. Exactly yeah. right. So yeah, it always just comes down to who's going to pull their checkbook out. Right. Right. Um, sure. And you know, growing organically is, is obviously in a lot of ways the best way, but this is such a dynamic industry. It's, yeah. You got a lot of, you could easily use that money to great. A- use, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's really tough to grow organically in this industry because there's so many organizations that, you know, are trying to outpace you and, you and know, they have, checkbooks. have way more resources, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Billion dollar companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're always concerned, like th- this is a tough place to be because someone go, Hey, uh, I want that. Let's throw 10 developers at it and change some of our messaging and, you know, do that as well, which I get it, I guess, but, uh, that's just the way it is. So I don't really have the luxury to just sit back and see what happens. I mean, not to mention competition aside, the industry is so different. I mean, now we're, we're getting into like web three, mm-hmm. we're getting into, it's not, you know, it's not shrinking AI. Now. this industry is getting, that's what I mean. It's like doubling like every year. I mean, people need cybersecurity, cybersecurity. I just read a metric that, uh, cybersecurity spending is set to outpace it spending this year. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. I think you're in a good spot. I can see where the competition is, but I think yeah. you're, it's like the wave is starting. And yeah, if you exactly. ride that wave, I think you're going to be. There's like a 0% unemployment rate. <laughs> sure. By right. 2025, they said like 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. Right. That's crazy, Tim. Yeah. yeah. So I feel pretty good about it. I think the, the uh, platform that we're building and the methodology greatly increases the inf- the efficiency for which to manage a cyber program, which is really important when you've got those kind of deficits in labor. Do you see it as like a, a SaaS then? As like a software as a service yeah. for that platform? Yeah, that, that'd be nice too. Then you could have a nice subscription revenue coming in. Yeah, that's definitely the... the so right now we're very services based um, with kind of the platform as our backend kernel. And as we develop the platform, then it kind of takes more more of a forefront where that's more of a SaaS platform. That's kind of our flagship offering. We're always going to offer services as like a co-managed solution uh, for organizations that, you know, don't get it or don't have those types of uh, resources to, to run it. Um, so that'll always be there, but that'll be kind of a backseat to, to where we want to go. Yep. So. All right. Can we look back for a minute? Please. Okay. Awesome. So that was a lot. <laughs> so I want to look back and, and review. You're still a young man and still have a lot ahead of you. But when you, if you're to look back, what would you do different? Jeez, man, there's always so much um, that you wonder what would have been different had I stayed in the Marines, right? I don't know. It might have been better. It might have been worse. Um, you know, I, uh, 
would it have been different had I gone to a different company versus Route 9B? I don't know that I, I can confidently say I would have done a whole lot of things different. Um, there's a lot of lessons that I learned from the things that I did wrong, you know, and I don't know that I would know them had I not made some of those mistakes. Um, in starting the company, I definitely would have, I, I definitely, I mean, COVID threw such a wrench in, in everything, but I definitely would have tried to stay more on point for sure. And had that discipline to stay with the value prop and the business model that you set out, you know, from the beginning with. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, yeah, okay, cool. We sold a few uh, subscriptions here and there um, to some security tools, but ultimately it was a time suck. It was a time waste, and it pulled me away from what I really set out to do anyway. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's that's the biggest thing, uh, at least in, in starting this organization. But it's so tough. Like, I don't even... I, we, there, there's like this thing that my wife and I, I, I saw it on some show or something where there's like this Chinese proverb. And I don't know if you guys ever heard this where, uh, the, the Chinese farmer's horse runs away. Right. And his neighbors are like, Oh, that's terrible. And he's like, Oh, it could be good. Could be bad. Who's to say. And a couple of days later, the horse comes back with some wild, uh, some wild horses in tow. And, you know, his neighbors are like, that's awesome. How good for you? And he's like, oh, it could be good, could be bad. Who's to say? His son uh, is trying to break one of the wild horses, and he falls off and breaks, like, his back or breaks his leg. And, uh, again, the neighbors, oh, that's terrible. He says, oh, it could be good, could be bad. Who's to say? And, like, the next next day, the Chinese government comes and comes to conscript all the young men from the village to go to war and his son can't go because his legs are broken. And so it just kind of shows that like, you don't know, you don't know what the best, you know, thing is. We always think that we know what's best or what would have been better, but you really don't. You, you move forward with the best, best information you've got. And that's, that's all you can do. And I think definitely being an intelligence analyst for all these years has absolutely changed the way that I approach things and my, my way of thinking. I'm very rarely like a hundred percent sure of anything. I just move forward with the best information I have. And until, you know, I have something else that, that changes that, then, then I take that into the equation, right? Take that into my reasoning. But I don't know that there's you know, a set thing that I would have done differently because who knows where that would have taken me. And then shifting gears, let's say you're talking to someone graduating high school or in college, graduating college, and they're looking at James McCarter thinking, man, I want to be like James or I want to be successful like James. <laughs> what do you tell them? Are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, uh, for me, at least, uh, joining the military is the best thing I ever did. And I would not recommend the Marine Corps to anybody that the number one goal is not to be a Marine. Otherwise, you're probably going to be disappointed if you're like, oh, school for your money for college or whatever. <laughs> it's uh, 
there there are branches for that, right? But um, I I heavily recommend the military for any young man or woman that uh, is trying to figure out what they want to do because one, it opens up great opportunities. It, it instills some discipline. You get to see, you know, really amazing things. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile to get out of your hometown and see a little bit of the world and see how things really work and get some, some real experience and have, have somebody, you know, have high expectations of you. But at the same time, uh, you learn to have high expectations of, of others and just what it, it, you grow up so fast and it changed me so fundamentally, um, that it's not something that I have to like try for to, to know those things. It just is, you know, it just is the way that I am now. So I would definitely recommend that. And then beyond that, I mentioned cybersecurity, man, they, there's a huge deficit if if you have any interest in you know tech or or computers or anything a lot of people have this mis misguided idea that like cybersecurity is just hacking computers and there's so many different um you know job roles there that uh if if you go cyber anything going to the military i can tell you there will be a lot of opportunities for you uh in the future well, you hear about it in the news all the time, other countries getting involved in whatever yeah. it is that we're doing. Yeah. And so just private, public, there's so many, you know, sectors of our community, of our population base that need that security, that need beefing, beefing that up. Right. Uh, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a continuing warfare that you don't need to declare war on another country just to protect yourself from them yeah. and their Absolutely. attacks. And so... Well, that was an incredible story, James. Yeah, James. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. Really, really great. Really good to have you on. I appreciate it. And that's been James yeah. McCarter, again, with Shadowscape. And you can find him at shadowscape.io or on LinkedIn as Shadowscape TI. Great to have you, James. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at Jord B. Hansen and at Brandon Minot to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.